Take your Bibles, please, and turn to Psalm 23. That's where we'll spend the next few weeks, Psalm 23, starting a series, Let the Shepherd Lead You. And here's the key concept for today, let the shepherd lead you to contentment. Lead you to contentment. Psalm 23. Most of you are familiar with Psalm 23. At least you've heard it or heard parts of it from time to time. In fact, this is one of those passages that even if you're not a believer, even if you don't really read the Word very often, we have some degree of familiarity with just in general because of its popularity. But today as we begin this series and for the next few weeks as we look at it verse by verse, I hope to pull out of it some truths that sometimes might pass us by in a casual reading. We need to understand that much of the Bible was written in a context of a rural setting. An outdoorsy farming culture in the ancient Israel is very much more familiar with nature and with animals that we, than we tend to be. The people of ancient Israel literally lived with their animals in a way that we do not. We, we are used to the suburbs. We are used to the cities. Uh, even if we grow up on a farm, it's not, we don't engage with the animals the way that these ancient folks did. And so sometimes the imagery kind of passes us by in terms of what it's really communicating. That's why it was so beneficial when back in 1970, a man by the name of Philip Keller wrote a book called the Sh A Shepherd Looks at Psalm 23. This is often called the Shepherd Psalm. And Philip Keller was a shepherd, and he grew up as a shepherd. He was around sheep his whole life, and so he had insights into what David says here that were very helpful for us. And I want to start this series with a story that comes from his book, because he remembers his days as a shepherd, and when his flock of sheep were separated from another person's flock of sheep by a simple wire fence. And the neighbor farmer, however, did not directly shepherd his sheep. The owner of the flock hired a hand, a tenant farmer, if you will, to care for the flock for him. And the fact was that he did not care for them much at all because he did not care about them. They were not his. He did not provide even the basics. Keller writes this. Now I'm quoting. He should never have been allowed to keep the sheep. His stock were thin, riddled with disease and parasites. They would come to the wire fence and stare blankly through the fence at the lush green pastures that my flock enjoyed. Had they been able to speak, I'm sure they would have said, Oh, to be free from this awful owner and this terrible shepherd. We start there because I want you to see the very first phrase of Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. The Lord is our shepherd. We have a great shepherd, a good shepherd who cares for his sheep. So let's read Psalm 23, and I think it's on the screen, so let's read it all out loud together, okay? Re reading Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. 
Surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This morning we focus simply on verse 1. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. David penned those words almost 3,000 years ago. And this is a psalm that has brought peace and comfort to the people of God and, like I said, people really who don't even know the Lord down through the centuries. This is one of those passages that speaks to the basic questions of life. And the basic questions of life are, who is God in relationship to me? Who am I in relationship to God? And David says, God is my shepherd. Now note that. He was a shepherd himself. We know that he worked the, the sheep outside of Bethlehem. He understood what it was to be a shepherd, and he also understands he needs a shepherd. And we all do. And he knew that he could have that shepherd in God. Now, notice with me the word that he uses of God in, as he begins the, 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 the psalm. He says, the Lord, notice the spelling in your English Bible, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. The Lord is my shepherd. It is significant when you're reading the Word of God, when you come across the word Lord spelled that way in your Bible. What it tells you that is that the, the Hebrew author, the one writing in Hebrew, is saying the name of God there. Now, I've looked in all the English editions that I could find, and almost all of them have that phrasing there. The Lord in all capitals is my shepherd. Only the American Standard Version back in the, the, the early part of the 19, 1900s that edition, uh, before the New American Standard Version, this was the Old American Standard Version, that does not have that word there. That's the only edition I could find, and it prints the word Jehovah. And so let me tell you why this is. It's important that we recognize what we see when we read the word. The, the English editor of your Bible is saying that in Hebrew, the text had the name of God. Now, the name of God was actually a four-consonant word, Y-H-W-H. That's the name God used when He revealed Himself to Moses. But early in Hebrew thought, it was considered a sign of disrespect if you write or pronounce the name of God. So to make sure that no one ever did that, no one ever wrote or pronounced the actual name of God, what happened is early on in, in the Jewish faith, the vowels of another word were inserted into the consonants of that word. Now, in Hebrew, vowels are just points and dashes around the consonants, and they took the vowels of the word, the most general word for Lord, which is the word Adonai, they took the vowels from that word, the consonants, Y-H-W-H, and they smashed them together to make a new word. And that's the word you know as Yahweh. It's a, it's a made-up word. It's a word that says you're, you're referring to the name of God while not actually saying the name of God out of respect. And that's what David wrote here. Yahweh is my shepherd. 
It's important that we know that because he's saying that the person, the being that shepherds me through life is not just a vague concept of a divinity. It's not some God out there that I'm hoping he's noticing me. No, he's talking about the God of Israel. He's talking about a personal God, the one who is his personal shepherd that he knows as the God of Abraham, the God of Jacob, the God of Moses, the God of Israel, the one true God who created all things. He's saying, Yahweh is my shepherd, and I need a shepherd. And we all need a shepherd, just like literal sheep need a shepherd. One author writes this, Sheep do not take care of themselves. They require more care than any other class of livestock. They require endless attention, meticulous care. I read that. It reminded me. When I was growing up, I would spend some time in the summer on my great uncle's dairy farm in upper New York State. And at a certain time of the day, I noticed something. I noticed that at a certain time of the day, without much prodding or leading, the cows would begin to make their way to the gate that opened up and let them into the barn, which was where they had dinner. In other words, for the most part, they would decide for themselves that the day was done. An afternoon of eating, lounging, swatting flies is now over. It's quitting time, time to go to the barn and do some more eating. Now, not every cow, some, every once in a while, there was a cow that didn't get the memo. We had to whistle for that cow or call that cow. But by most, most of them, once the movement started, they all joined in, ready to end the day, and that's the, the work is done. But not so sheep. Sheep are not like that. They, they don't have that sense of self-guidance. And we, like, a, like the sheep, we need a shepherd. We need a shepherd, first of all, because without a shepherd, we'd be lost. Isaiah 53, 6, we all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Like sheep, we go astray. I hope you're getting the picture, and you certainly will over the next few weeks, the picture that when the Bible calls you sheep, it is not a compliment. No. You're wandering away. In fact, I, 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 I think of the sheep nibbling their way into lostness. And what I mean is, you know, their, their head is down. They're concentrating on the, on the grass. They see another tuff of grass here and another one there. Nibble, 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 nibble. Another one here, nibble, nibble. Pretty soon they're way away from where the flock is. And they, they lift up their head and they say, where did everybody go? The sheep nibbles themselves into lostness. And humans are a lot like that. Head down. Concentrating on the things that we want. Oh, I like some of that. I want some more of that. I'd like to be like this. I'd like to have that. And nibble, 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 nibble. Pretty soon we're way out of touch with where the shepherd wants us to be. Nibbling our way in lost to lostness. We need a shepherd to keep us safe, to keep us on track. We need a shepherd again because we're vulnerable. Sheep are vulnerable to predators. There's not a lot of natural protection in sheep. They're no match for the wolf. The sheep have no militia. They have no neighborhood watch. They're on their own if it isn't for the shepherd. And the wolf comes, would love a mutton dinner. But part of being a shepherd is protecting the flock, if, even if it means fighting with the enemy. And that's part of what your good shepherd does for you. 
David, as he's preparing to fight Goliath, has to convince the powers that be to let him fight Goliath. You remember the scene? And he convinces them by saying, listen, I protected the sheep against the lion, against the bear. Part of my job was to go against the odds. And we have one who protects us. We think of ourselves as wise and as able, but we are prime picking for Satan without our shepherd. Thirdly, we need a shepherd because we're stubborn. Sheep are stubborn. But human beings, maybe we take the cake. ABC News reported a study that was conducted in Britain. It it concluded this. The average male driver drives an extra 276 miles every year as a result of being lost and not asking for directions. Now, I can't help but think maybe this was before Google Maps, but still, it shows us our inclination. And by the way, praise God for Google Maps, right? Okay, I'm just saying. In that study, 26% of the men said they would ask for directions after a half an hour of driving lost. In that same study, 12% of the respondents said they will never ask directions, no matter how lost they are. I thought to myself, so what do they do? Just sleep on the side of the road? Anyway, stubborn people need a shepherd. And David identifies the shepherd that he needs, that he has as the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth, the lover of your soul. He says, the Lord is my shepherd. See, he could have said, The Lord is a shepherd. It would have been true, but it would not have been as beneficial. David is saying, he's my shepherd. I have a relationship with the Lord. I am part of the flock. I know him. He knows me. This is a personal thing. This is a real thing. And this personal relationship of being part of the flock of God brings results. And the result is, next line, I shall not be in want. The result is supply. The result is contentment. Now, let's notice what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean, I shall not be in want, doesn't mean simply because I'm a believer, I can claim wealth based on my faith. doesn't mean that. Now, there are rich people in the Bible, followers of God who are worldly rich. David was wealthy. Abraham was wealthy. Solomon, of course, uber wealthy, right? But many of the heroes of the faith were poor. Most of the prophets, poor. John the Baptist lived in the wilderness. The apostles, very dependent on others to make ends meet. Jesus himself said, I have no place to lay my head. It's impossible for me to understand how people can say, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ, and by the, by the virtue of my faith, I therefore deserve to be worldly wealthy when Jesus himself was poor. It doesn't mean also that you will be able to claim perfect health. We live in a world that's diseased by sin, and that affects us. It affects our bodies. We get sick just like everybody else. You don't have an exemption clause there. It is not the case that believers don't get sick. If that was the case, believers would never die. And guess what? We do, in this body at least. We have a great physician and we have a healer, but the reason we have that is because we do get sick. And neither does it mean you will never experience difficulty in life because the battle is real. 
There will be times when you're discouraged. There will be times when you have difficulty. There will be times when you face situations that are hard. But the thing is, in all of these times, the shepherd is with you. In all of these times, he's alongside you. You shall not be in want. What does it mean? It means supply and contentment. It means, first of all, God will supply your needs. Philippians 4 says this, And my God will meet all your needs according to His glorious riches in Christ Jesus. It means I won't lack what I need. Why? Because the Lord who's shepherding me loves me. Think of those neighbor sheep in the, in the opening illustration, in the field next to Philip Keller's field, those unattended, neglected sheep. The water they had was muddy and polluted. Their food was scarce. Their disease was common. The shepherd didn't care for them because he did not care about them. But you have a shepherd who not only cares about you, who loves you with an everlasting love. It's not a promise of wealth, but it is a promise of care, an expectation of nearness. It is meant to bring in us the mindset that says, I am satisfied with the way that God is managing my life. I am under good management because my shepherd loves me and he knows what's best. And it means, secondly, contentment with the supply. Think of that shepherd leading the sheep, constantly thinking ahead for places where the sheep will be able to graze, for places where the sheep will be able to drink and have their thirst quenched. The shepherd knows the road ahead. He knows the field ahead. And he knows the need of the sheep before they start to ask. And he has that need in mind. And your good shepherd is the same way. Contentment should be the result. Our society says contentment is for wimps. If you're content with what you have, you must be too weak to engage in the competition of life. Or if contentment is, for, for, is silly because life is all about getting ahead and getting more and getting on with it. But listen to what the Apostle Paul says. He says, godliness with contentment is great gain. What's the gain? It's gain because biblical contentment means through the presence of the shepherd, I have an inner sufficiency that he supplies. It's not dependent on my ability to make it all work. My trust is in my shepherd, not in my strength. His insight, not my wisdom. His care for me, not my ability. And when you look at life through that kind of lens, what happens is, it calms you. It keeps you from the destructive pressures that come when I think it all depends on me. It protects me from falling prey to one of the greatest sins of our age, and that is the sin of coveting. Coveting is one of the great thou shalt nots of the Bible. Exodus 20, verse 17, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife nor his manservant, nor maidservant, his ox, his donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. That is commandment 10 of the Ten Commandments. And God knew that this was something that people would always struggle with. No matter the culture, no matter the place and time or history, coveting is a problem. Coveting is a passion to possess. It is the consumer mentality on steroids. Coveting causes you to focus not on what the shepherd has supplied to you and provided, but on what you don't have, but maybe somebody else has. You see, there are two great opposites at war in your life. The one is coveting and the other is contentment. And the question is, which of those opposites will win within you? 
Paul says, I've learned to be content. Notice he didn't say, I was born with a very contented mindset. Nor did he say, by nature, I'm just not a pushy person. He said, I have learned. This is not something you're born with. This is not something the, the culture teaches you. You have to learn contentment. Choose it. And how do you learn contentment? Let me give you some hints. Number one, learn contentment by looking at your present in light of the future because the shepherd knows where he's going. In other words, as you're experiencing difficult times, as you're experiencing maybe moments that seem like lack or difficulty, hard times, contentment comes when you ask the future question. And the future question is this, what is the shepherd teaching me now that I will need in the future? What is the shepherd taking me through now that I can use in the future? How is the shepherd growing me and in, in, uh, in maturing me now that I can use in the future? Because part of trusting the shepherd is trusting that this is part of his plan. And he is preparing me for what comes next because the shepherd knows what comes next and is always watching the flock. He's looking down the road, and he knows what we will need when we get to that next juncture. So right now, the shepherd is providing what will prepare me. Secondly, you learn contentment by looking at yourself in light of your primary identity. Who are you primarily? David says, primarily, I am part of the flock of God. Primarily. I am a child of God. I am loved by God. I am a lamb in his flock. I am all that first before I am anything else. I am not my job. I am not my income. I am not my stuff. I am not what I store in my bank account. Who we are has nothing to do with the externals of life, with the clothes that we wear, the car that we drive. God does not look down from heaven and say, oh, yeah, he's the guy with the great set of golf clubs. Or, oh, yeah, she's the lady with the expensive jewelry or that brand-new iPhone. He does not define us by our possessions or our positions or our power. He looks at the heart. 1 Samuel 16, the Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Your primary identity is who you are, your heart identity in the eyes of God. And when God looks at you, he sees your heart identity as lamb in my flock, if you are his. To learn contentment. Thirdly, take inventory. When you take inventory, you gain perspective. Maybe this has happened to you. It, it happens to me. You come home from the grocery store and you're putting things away in your cupboard and you put something away and you say, I already have this. I have tons of this. I have six cans of relish here. Why did I buy relish? I don't need relish. I don't even like relish. How does this come? To, I buy stuff that I don't need. It happens because I don't take inventory before I go. So caught up in going out there and getting stuff to put in the cupboards, to stuff the cupboards with, and, and all along the way, and I go down the grocery store aisle, and I say, relish. Well, just in case, right? Like, what do you mean just in case? In case there's a great relish famine or something? Like, <laughs> taking inventory is important. 
In the pursuit of more and more, though, we don't do it. Taking inventory the way I'm describing it is stepping out of your routine and pausing in the pursuit that we're in and appreciating what we have, appreciating who we are, where we are, and letting the stress level down. A man was stressed in life, and he, and he went to his doctor with headaches, and he had stomach condition as well. And the doctor looked him over, and he said, listen, I can't, I can't find anything really wrong with you, but I tell you what, I'm going to give you a prescription. If you promise, you'll do it. And he said, okay. So he said, tell me about the place, your favorite memories of childhood, the place where your favorite memories came to be. And he said without hesitation, oh, that's the beach. I loved going to the beach as a kid. He said, okay, tomorrow I want you to take off and go to the beach. I'm going to write you prescriptions for one at 9 o'clock, one at noon, one at 3 p.m., and one at 6 p.m. Little notes, and you, you do what I prescribe at each of those times. He said, okay. So he did that. He went to the beach at 9 a.m. He opened the first note, and the first note said, listen carefully. So he listened. He heard the crash of the waves, the sound of the wind, but pretty soon he, he also heard the echo of his childhood fun, the things that, you know, in his memory he could see himself doing. And that was the essence of the next note. The noontime note said, look back. And so he did. He started to think about what the family used to do right here on this beach, the, 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 the friends that they brought along with them, the picnics that they had and the times in the surf. The third, 3 p.m. note said, examine motives. Now that, he was at first a little offended by that, a little defensive of that, meaning examine motives. But when he thought about it, he remembered, well, sometimes my motives have to do with competition. Sometimes my motives are selfish. Sometimes I want to look good more than anything else. I want to be respected more than anything else. And the 6 p.m. note said, write your cares in the sand. And so that's literally what he did. He picked up a stick and he wrote the, generally the things that he was worried about. And he watched the water wash over those words and carry them out to sea. And he gained perspective that day. That was a taking inventory day. And when we believers in Jesus Christ, when we take inventory, we see that we are part of the great flock of God. We see that we are shepherded by the great and good shepherd who loves us. And we learn that what you have in the shepherd is greater than what you don't have in life. Fourthly, to learn contentment. Trust the shepherd. It goes back to the theme, let the shepherd lead you. Part of contentment is having contentment in the shepherd knowing that he is trustworthy. Where he takes me is going to be an idea that comes from love. He knows best. And so I don't lack. One little boy was reciting the first verse of the 23rd Psalm in the Sunday school class, and he messed it up. But when he messed it up, he got the sense of it just right. He said this, The Lord is my shepherd. I don't want anything else. <laughs> that is perfect. That is perfect. My shepherd my contentment, it comes when we stop with the generalities of religion and we know that we are in a personal relationship. And in the flock of God, what you have in the shepherd is greater than what you don't have in life. Let's pray together. Lord, give us contentment in you. Help us to trust you in the leadership that you give us in life. Forgive us for the times when we think we have to shepherd our she ourselves. 
Lord, we would go astray if we do that. But in you, we are led by one who loves us. Remind us of that fact this week, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.